exploring Canaan. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. For each ancestral tribe sent one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Report on the exploration. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites lived near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people, they are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to the people. <clears throat> the people rebel. Th that night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. 
They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people and that you, O Lord, have been face, seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report will say, uh, report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the desert. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert who had disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children, that you say would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in the desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it, these men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh survived. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a great joy uh, to be here with you uh, and to see many uh, familiar faces uh, as well. Um, 
uh, it is uh, good to be bringing you Numbers 13 and 14. And I want to begin uh, with a question uh, today. What do you think is the biggest threat facing Christians today? What do you think is the biggest threat facing Christians today? Uh, I work with students uh, on campus, uh, and there are many threats uh, to faith in that space. Uh, Particularly at uni, uh, sometimes it's actually pretty easy to see them. Uh, There's a secular materialist worldview that is in opposition with Christianity that can shake faith pretty easily. Uh, Particularly when you start thinking about things like ethics and morality, whether it's sexuality or gender, or more basically, those fundamental questions of what is it to live the good life? Where is your meaning? What is your purpose? There are other threats as well. The pursuit of perfectionism. The desire to attain knowledge. Or just maybe the apathy that comes as you see the pleasures of this world which seem so much more real than the joy that comes from the Bible. But actually, at every stage in our lives, there are pressures, aren't there? Reasons that we might fall away, threats to our faith. And if you reflect for a moment, whatever stage that you are in today, you'll be able to come up with a list pretty quickly. But today we're going to be looking at a threat that might not come up in your list, might not come up in your top five, it might not even make it into your top ten. It's not obvious, like idolatry or sexual immorality, and yet the Apostle Paul is going to put it on the same level. And because it's not obvious, it can shape and change us in ways that we don't even realise. It can impact the way that we think. It can shape our thoughts. And it can take us into some very dangerous places. And it's not a small sin. It's something that we have to take seriously. And so this morning, Numbers is going to tell us that grumbling might be the biggest threat to your faith today. And if that is true, then it is something that we need to take seriously. And so as we come to this passage, uh, let me pray for us, uh, and then we will jump into it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Father, this morning as we come to a passage that tells us about grumbling, I pray that you would help us to have hearts that are soft, minds that are ready to learn. And I pray, Father, that you would be convicting those of us who need to be convicted, that you would be rebuking those of us who need to be rebuked, and you would be bringing comfort and joy to those of us who need the comfort and hope of the gospel. And so, Father, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, keep your Bibles open as we jump into our passage today. Uh, And we begin with the Israelites on the edge of the promised land. Uh, Numbers has begun with Israel at Mount Sinai, uh, down the bottom then, there. Uh, But now they are on the move. We can see on the map in chapters 11 and 12, God moves them from the bottom there at Mount Sinai all the way up to Kadesh. They move through the desert of Paran. And just north of Kadesh, at the very top, you can see Canaan, the promised land. That is their destination. And so our passage starts with the next step in their journey. Numbers 13, verses 1 and 2. Read with me there. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. 
from each ancestral tribe send one of its leaders. So this is a scouting trip, essentially. The nation has moved, and now they are sending men ahead to do reconnaissance. Two things to note here. Firstly, there's one representative from each of the tribes, uh, which means that the delegation is representative of Israel. That's reinforced uh, in 3 to 16. But secondly, notice what God says about the land. They are to explore Canaan, which God says, I am giving to the Israelites. Canaan is a gift that God is giving. This is not something to be earned or to be gained. And this comment here is important because it becomes the lens through which we're supposed to read the rest of this narrative. And it raises the question that hangs over this whole story. Will Israel believe in the promise given by God here? Or will they not believe? And so, verses 17 to 25, they do the exploring. Uh, In kids' Bibles, uh, they often talk about the 12 spies going into Canaan. Uh, But let's be honest, it's not really spying, is it? It's more like a Sunday stroll down to the Sterling Markets to get some grapes and figs and pomegranates. And they manage to do it quite easily. It's all a very nice trip. But as they come back, it turns out that the scouts have experienced the trip very differently. And like most committees, they've failed to reach a unanimous report. Ten of them make up the majority report. Uh, You can read it here with me in verse 27. Here's the majority report. They come back and they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Now, this mention of the Anak is crucial. Uh, The Anak have already been mentioned in verse 22, and they're mentioned here, and when the minority report pushes back, it is the Anak that is at the heart of the rebuttal. Have a look at verse 31. But the people who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. So who are the Nephilim? Well, all we really know about them is a somewhat cryptic passage in Genesis 6 verse 4. This is what it says, Genesis 6 verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Who are they? Well, it's somewhat tricky to say. Uh, Chris, I'm sure we'll be able to give you the answers after the service. But the impression is of fearsome giant warriors who have this sort of almost mythic quality to them. The point for us here in numbers is that these guys are definitely scary. This is not just another nation. There is genuine reason for Israel to be afraid. But remember, God has already promised Israel the land of Canaan. And the question that is hanging over the narrative is will they believe in the promise of God or will they distort reality and trust in themselves? And as we move into chapter 14, we get the answer. 
They, of course, trust in their own abilities, and as soon as they do that, they despair at their own capacity to get the job done. And there's a rightness to the way that the Israelites think. Humanly speaking, they can't defeat the Anak. Remember, of course, that these guys are a slave nation. They've literally been a nation for less than a year. They've been mistreated and abused as slaves for generations. They are in absolutely no position to take on fearsome giant warriors. But there's also a profound wrongness to it as well. Because in doing so, they take their trust from God. They don't believe that he can save them. And so what do they do? They start to grumble. Look at what they say in chapter 14, verse 2. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, when we hear this, it feels a little bit over the top. It feels like a two-year-old tantrum when you don't get the pink cup and suddenly your whole world is falling apart. So how do we get to this point? Well, the key to this is the grumbling. The Israelites grumble against Moses and Aaron. And there are three specific things about their grumbling that we're going to zoom in on. The first one is this. The Israelites cultivate a heart of grumbling. Part of the answer to the question, how do they get to this point, is to notice that this is not the first time that they grumble. They haven't gone from zero to 100 here. They have been growing this grumbling heart like a muscle that is exercised, getting bigger and bigger and stronger every time that they use it. If we go back to chapter 11, what is chapter 11 all about? It's about grumbling. The Israelites grumble about the manna. They don't like the food that they have been given. Have a look at chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. And then in a somewhat hilarious move, the narrator spends the next three verses telling us how delicious the manna actually was and the variety of ways it could be cooked. But then, what is chapter 12 all about? Well, it's also about grumbling. This time, Miriam and Aaron. But interestingly, this time, they probably have grounds for being annoyed because Moses marries a Cushite woman, which is not the right thing to do. But instead of talking to Moses and God about it, they grumble about it. And this grumbling has been a pattern that has grown and grown. We've got a nine-month-old at home, little Will, and when they talk about babies and sleeping, there's a phrase that often gets used, that sleep begets sleep. That is, the more your baby sleeps, the better they'll be able to sleep. It's a little bit like this in grumbling, isn't it? Grumbling begets grumbling. The more you do it, the more likely you are to do it. I wonder if this rings true for you. I think we can all resonate with this. If grumbling is your internal monologue, then it just kind of feeds on itself. 
the more you dwell on what is frustrating you, the more, you, more frustrated you get at it and the more that you dwell on it. And it's not long before you're pulling others into your grumbling. It's such an easy trap and pattern to fall into. But notice what happens when we do this. Point two, by grumbling, Israel distort their picture of reality. By grumbling, Israel distort their picture of reality. Look at the words again in verse two. If only we had died in Egypt, or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now, of course, this seems strange to us because we, of course, know what it was like in Egypt. But by grumbling, they have focused on all the evil of their current situation and none of the good. They have focused on all the potential battles with the Anak and the assumption that they're going to lose. They have not focused on the good. They have not focused on the fact that God has saved them from Pharaoh at the Red Sea to providing them with food and water from heaven, that he has promised them this land. And because they maximize evil and minimize the good, they then have this warped perception of what Egypt was like. They have distorted reality and ended up at a point where they think that their current position is bad, but perversely that back in Egypt, it was good. And the same is true for us, isn't it? When we grumble, we distort the reality of our situation. We pick up little evils, a bad habit from a family member, a way something is done in church, a frustration at the workplace, and then we grumble about it. And by grumbling, we focus on it and we dwell on that evil until that little thing becomes so big that it distorts everything else. But this is not the worst problem that grumbling brings. Point three, by grumbling, Israel distorts their picture of God. By grumbling, Israel distorts their picture of God. Of all the problems then, this is the biggest. Because we know how God has acted towards Israel. But by cultivating this heart of grumbling, they've distorted their view of reality, but in doing so, they distort their picture of God. And this is the heart of grumbling. We focus on the evil and think, what has God done for us? Why does he allow all this evil? He mustn't love us. He doesn't have our best interests at heart. If he was a good God, then he would do X, Y, and Z for us. And how do you think God feels when he hears this? Well, verse 10b tells us. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the things that I have performed among them? God has been incredibly gracious to them. He has been their savior. But by grumbling, they have created this grotesque caricature of the very one who rescued them from Egypt. They have forgotten that God is not our genie, but our judge. And God's response equals judgment. And so for the rest of chapter 14, we have this back and forth of judgment on Israel's grumbling. Let's listen to some of the judgment in verse 27. God says, how long 
will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years old or more who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hands to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explore the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. Brothers and sisters, grumbling is not a minor sin. Grumbling could be the greatest threat to your faith right now, the greatest threat to the church, this church, my church, groups like ES. Because I think what's really interesting is the way in which this story is then used as a cautionary tale the whole way through the Bible. In fact, in the very next book, Deuteronomy 1, as the Israelites finally stand on the edge of the promised land about to go in, it is this story here that Moses reaches for as a warning to them, not to repeat it. In Psalm 95, the psalmist uses this incident as a warning. That was the psalm we read out at the start, although we stopped at the warning bit. But then even through into the New Testament, it's this story that Paul picks up to warn against grumbling. In 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Paul says, Now these things, that is Numbers 13 and 14, occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Paul then talks about idolatry, obviously a major sin. Then Paul talks about sexual immorality, obviously a major sin. And then we get verse 10. And do not grumble as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Paul sits grumbling alongside idolatry and sexual immorality. And finally, Hebrews, quoting Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Because ultimately, grumbling is about unbelief. When we distort the picture of God, we have fallen into unbelief. And this is why it's not a minor sin. Unbelief is always, always serious. And so grumbling then is not something that we can ignore or treat as a light sin, a respectable sin. We need to listen to the warning. Because the saddest part of this story, I reckon, is the ending. After hearing the judgment, Israel realise what they've done is wrong and they try then to actually go up into Canaan. But they're too late. God's judgment has fallen on them and they are forced back out into the wilderness. So, how then do we take these warnings seriously? What is the antidote to grumbling? Well, the answer to that lies in the minority report. We haven't talked about Joshua and Caleb yet, but they are the heroes in this story. 
because they take the promise that God gives in 13 verses 1 and 2 seriously, that God will give them this land. And in doing so, what they do is they cultivate a heart of thankfulness and trust towards God. As they scout out the land, they see things differently. They understand that this is a gift that God has given to them. So when they come back and the majority report is made, this is how they implore their fellow Israelites. Chapter 14, verse 7b to 9. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is God, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. You see, their hearts of thankfulness allow them to see both reality correctly and also God correctly. The Anak might be terrifying, but they are nothing compared to the Lord God Almighty. If the Lord God Almighty has promised that land will be theirs, then it will be. And nothing, therefore, can stand in Israel's way. And their thankfulness leads to belief. It is this belief that means that Caleb and Joshua are the only Israelites of their age who will enter the land. And not just enter, it is Joshua who will lead Israel. It is Joshua who will drive the Anak from the land. In fact, he will drive them all the way to Gath. And so Israel will enter the land and into that rest that was promised them. God is faithful to his promise in Numbers 13, 1 and 2. But as we were able to trace the grumbling through the Bible, the belief of Joshua and Caleb also echoes its way through as well. Earlier in this year, at ES, we were looking at the character of David. And the most famous story is, of course, David versus Goliath. But what's interesting is the similarities in that story between David and Goliath and Numbers 13 and 14. Because who is Goliath? He is a giant, a mythical giant warrior. Terrifyingly large. Israel looked like grasshoppers in front of them. 1 Samuel 17, 23 says this. As David was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Israel faced a giant and their unbelief rises. And we're told specifically that Goliath is from Gath. What's important about Gath? Well, that's where Joshua drives the Anak to. Goliath is an Anak. That's the point. And how long does he shout and taunt Israel? For 40 days. These details are not accidental. David and Goliath is a recapitulation of Numbers 13 and 14. And as Saul falters like the majority report, it is David who is like Joshua who does not grumble in the face of adversity, but sees clearly both reality and God. And so David finishes the job that Numbers 13 and 14 begins. And so then as we continue to make our way through the Bible, is it any wonder that the first event after Jesus' baptism is the temptation in the wilderness for how many days? For 40 days. Jesus, as the true Israelite, is tempted to grumbling and unbelief, but where Israel fails, Jesus is the true and better Joshua, the true and better David, and he trusts in God. 
And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, with the weight of the world on his shoulders, his suffering and death moments away, he does not grumble, but instead says, your will be done. Because Jesus has cultivated love in his heart towards a grumbling people. He sees us clearly and understands our reality. And even at the ultimate moment of unbelief, where the Son of God is crucified, Jesus is taking on himself the judgment for a grumbling people and is creating a new way for us to enter into his rest. And so, brothers and sisters, Numbers 13 and 14 is not just a warning. Numbers 13 and 14 points us towards the hope of salvation because Jesus has given us entrance into the promised land of God's kingdom where we can find eternal rest. So then to finish, what does this mean for us? Well, three things for us to think about. Number one, we do need to heed the warning. Grumbling is not something that we can just tolerate in our lives. It's something we need to take seriously, to notice when it happens, and to put it to death. I work with uni students, and you'll be happy to hear that none of them have ever grumbled, ever. It's quite extraordinary. Of course, that's not true. Uni students face a unique set of challenges, just like all of us, wherever we are at. And when the pressure comes, the temptation to grumble is real. And also the pressure to minimise it, to think, oh, it's not really not that bad at all. It's something that we all do. But no, grumbling might be the biggest threat to your faith right now. Let's see it clearly, understand our reality clearly. So where do you notice yourself grumbling? When are you doing it? Are there certain people or situations where it is easier to grumble? It's important to notice, but then what do we do to counter it? Number two then, we cultivate our hearts of love and thankfulness towards God. We need to cultivate hearts of love and thankfulness towards God. Love and thankfulness is the opposite to grumbling, isn't it? If grumbling begets grumbling, then thankfulness will beget thankfulness. Of course, modern psychology has picked up on this. Gratitude is a big thing now. But what they've noticed is really just the ancient wisdom that comes from these Christian scriptures. Something that is core to how Christians understand this world. That we are creatures who are dependent on our creator. We have someone to be thankful for. I've recently been convicted of this. There's a 15 minute walk from where I park, at the uni camp, from where I park up to the uni campus. And I listen to too many podcasts and so I've chosen in that 15 minutes not to listen any, to anything, but simply to try and walk and be thankful to God for all the things that he has given. No matter how I'm feeling, if I'm stressed or anxious, calm or excited, whatever it is. And in doing so, it helps shape the inner monologue throughout my day when I do it. it stops me from grumbling, focuses me on Jesus and all he has done and helps me love others better around. Now, that's absolutely a work in progress. But what is it going to look like concretely for you in your day, in your week? Number three, understand our reality in light of Jesus. Grumbling distorts our perceptions of ourselves and of God. When we take God out of the picture, it can become so overwhelming so quickly. But we have a God in Jesus who does not grumble at our failings, but instead has died for them. He has come to a grumbling people and loved them. 
What does that mean? Well, it means for us that the judgment that should have been ours, the judgment that was laid on Israel, has now instead been placed on Jesus' shoulders. Which means here is the great hope for us as we finish. While the story in Numbers finishes with judgment on Israel, this is not our story. Because in Jesus, no matter how many times we get it wrong, we fall back into those old patterns. In Jesus, we have already entered into God's rest. Jesus is the fulfillment of Numbers 13, 1 and 2. God doesn't just give Israel the land. In Jesus, he gives all of us to believe entrance into something bigger and greater. His eternal and everlasting kingdom. And if that's true, well, let's not grumble, but turn our hearts to God in thanks and praise. Amen. We're going to have some time of confession now. It's a perfect time for that. I hope you look forward, as I do, to exploring that more in our small groups this week. Let's confess together using words on the screen. Together. Thank you for Jesus, the light of the world, whose light exposes the darkness in ourselves, yet also enables the blind to see. We confess that in many ways we have been blind, morally blind to our own sin, our own need for Christ, blind to ourselves by thinking ourselves better than we ought, blind to Jesus by thinking we don't need him, blind to the high purpose of worshipping him. We are sorry for grumbling, for not seeing or forgetting the good things you have given us, and continue to give us every day. Have mercy on us, we pray. Open our eyes to see Christ as he truly is, and help us to walk in his light as those who have been delivered from darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue our prayers now. Thank you.